Well, let's pray together. Father, we need you. By the purchase of your Son and his blood, atoning for our sins, bringing peace between us and you by the power of your Holy Spirit. We need you now that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds with a very large passage, but a very pristine and pure point. Make it clear for us, we pray. We need you. Make it so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a seat. Imagine with me, you walk into a room, maybe the size of this one, and you look over the room and you see all the notable people from the Old Testament. You see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see Moses, you see David, you see Isaiah, you see Ezekiel. You see all of these very familiar faces. You see them clearly, you know who they are. And then, yet at the very back, there's someone you don't recognize. There's, there's a faint outline. It's sort of a shadowy figure, more than anything. Who is that? Well, someone tells you, that's Melchizedek. We don't know a lot about Melchizedek. There's a shroud of mystery about him. Yet, as we'll see this morning, even from this passage, Melchizedek is of critical importance to the gospel, which means you need to know about him. And a word of perspective for us, that uh, this passage is long, and it doesn't immediately flower upon us when we first lay our eyes upon it. It takes a certain level of attention and interaction, and uh, there is quite a bit of, of digging to do, but just to reassure you, my intention is to take a very long passage and to make actually a relatively short sermon out of it. <laughs> and all God's people sigh a sigh of relief. <laughs> but, but friends, there is some digging involved, so stay with me. And as it's been said, if you rake, you get leaves. But if you dig, you get gold. And believe me, there is a treasure chest of gold at the end of this passage. So stay with me. We'll get there. But while we're thinking about, you know, the effort <laughs> involved to unpack Melchizedek, we, we think about, now that, that was a pretty, I think, friendly introduction to Melchizedek, I think. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews didn't have as friendly of an introduction to him. He actually introduces the Hebrews, the, the audience of this letter, he introduces Melchizedek in chapter 5, and he, uh, he introduces with a brief allusion to Melchizedek, and then he stops in chapter 5, verse 11, and he says this, about this, Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. What he's getting at I didn't say that about you, but what he's getting at here is that his audience, likely Jewish Christians, had become spiritually lazy. Christians who are in the word and prayer regularly are much easier to teach since they are quick to listen, quick to receive, and quick to obey 
But these believers, blood-bought believers, had become a little spiritually flabby. And so Melchizedek will be a challenge for them. Not impossible. It's going to be harder. So it's interesting, though, while at the same time we recognize that the context of this letter, what's happening in the life of these believers is that they were at the same time facing very strong persecution for their faith. They were publicly mocked for their faith, wrongfully imprisoned, had their goods stolen, and more. So in the midst of persecution, think about it, these believers were maintaining the course. They were maintaining their faith in the Lord Jesus, and yet they were losing zeal. They were becoming discouraged, tired, and beginning to drift away from distinct Christianity, maybe into something a little bit more mainstream. And is that you this morning? Are, are, are we not finding it difficult to go on in this increasingly secular age to maintain distinct Christianity, to, to remain salt and light in this age is tiring. There is a discouragement and a fatigue that can come about in us and perhaps a little bit of spiritual laziness, similar to the audience of the Hebrews. But what this letter seeks to do, even with meaty passages like this in Hebrews 7, is to edify the mind in such a way that it reinvigorates the heart, that Christ would be seen as supreme above all, that the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant, and to therefore strengthen weak knees and lift drooping hands. So, so Hebrews 7, meaty theology, is actually given to encourage discouraged, tired Christians. So uh, with that said, let's look to this with expectation and attention. Apart from this passage in Hebrews 7, the Bible says very little about Melchizedek. I think five verses. That's it. And yet, the writer to the Hebrews writes what we just read. A huge amount. Very brief interaction with Abraham in Genesis 14. He seems to appear out of nowhere. And then he just disappears. That's it. A lot of mystery surrounding him. And yet it seems that the information we don't have about Melchizedek is more important than the information we do have. Put it another way, the lack of background information about Melchizedek is intentional. So with our passage before us, I encourage you to, to follow along. Uh, let's begin with what we do know. What do we know about Melchizedek? Well, we know his name. What's his name? Melchizedek. Two Hebrew words bolted together. Melech means king. Sadiq means righteousness. So he is the king of righteousness. And you see that in verse 2. We know his name. We also know his roles. Hebrews 7 verse 1 tells us that he is king of Salem priest of the Most High God. Now notice that he is both king and priest. Very significant, massive significance that he is king and priest. In the ancient Near East, it wasn't uncommon for there to be those combined roles, but, but in, in God's design, in God's order, in, in biblical history, those roles were often 
usually separate. The priest and the king were not the same person. You can think of King Uzziah, who entered the, the temple to burn incense to the Lord. In 2 Chronicles 26, Azariah the priest, along with 80 other priests, charge in because the king is going where he shouldn't go. Do you remember that? They charge in. That would have been a sight. 80 priests running in after him, and he says, they say, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong. Uzziah, of course, didn't heed their rebuke, but instead he got angry, and the Lord struck him with leprosy, which he lived with for the rest of his life. So then we see Melchizedek, he is priest and king, priest of the, God, of the Most High God and king. Melchizedek is king of Salem, which is the city of Jerusalem, but at the time occupied by the Jebusites. This is the, this is the city of peace, of Shalom, Salem, Shalom. It was the non-Israelite city at the time and ruled by King Melchizedek. So if you see in verse 2 that he is both king of righteousness by name and king of peace by geography. And if you think about our contemporary world leaders, I don't know if we would bolt on those to them. This doesn't describe our current world leaders but it does describe the king of kings, Jesus Christ, who alone brings peace between God and man. So if that's what we know, that's about the extent of it. That's all we know about Melchizedek. That's all we know. What is it that we don't know? Well, we don't know who his parents were. Normally, the scriptures locate a person in relation to their family tree, and yet we don't know who his mom and dad were. We don't have any genealogy. Hebrews 7 verse 3 makes the claim that he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. He just sort of shows up without any backstory, and that's intentional. This raises the question that many have wrestled with over the centuries. Who was Melchizedek? Was he a real person? Was he an angel? Was he perhaps an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, a Christophany. Some people have leaned towards this, the Christophany, on account of the end of uh, Hebrews 7, verse 3, where we are told Melchizedek was resembling the Son of God, and so he continues a priest forever. What do you mean, resembling? Was he the Son of God? Well, there are, there are many speculations, and, and theologians like to write, and so there's lots of thoughts worth looking into. But most are in agreement that Melchizedek, he had a mom, he had a dad. He was just a regular man who had parents, he lived and died, and yet these details of his genealogy omitted for a reason. To give sort of a, an outline, a faint outline of his priesthood. By not including his genealogy, it is as if Melchizedek had no beginning and has no end. So the priesthood of Melchizedek, therefore, set up by God, is perpetual. It doesn't end. In this way, indeed, Melchizedek does resemble the Son of God, since God the Son is eternal. Moving on in our passage, 
verses 4 to 10 give commentary on that exchange that happened in Genesis 14. Basically, Abraham returns from battle, and he gives Melchizedek 10% of the plunder. And then Abraham receives a blessing from Melchizedek. It's all very priestly activity. And yet the significance of who is doing what is probably lost on us. This is Abraham. Abraham. And yet it is Abraham who is giving his goods to another. And it is someone else who is giving the blessing to Abraham. Abraham, the great Abraham. It says in verse 7 that it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Think of it this way. Imagine whoever your hero is. John MacArthur. You're going to go out for lunch with John MacArthur. Who's going to pay for lunch? (laughs) And who's going to pray the blessing over the meal? (laughs) Sorry, if you're going out to lunch with John MacArthur, you're paying for lunch. And yet, when you come time to to give a blessing over the the meal and the conversation, please, please, would you pray? John MacArthur. People love John MacArthur. Uh, In the same way, it is Abraham who humbles himself as the inferior. This great Abraham, he is the one who offers tithes to and receives a blessing from the superior Melchizedek. Now, this is really important. Like, like really important. If you're already falling asleep because it's hot, wake up because this is crucial. Under the old covenant, who were the priests? The sons of Levi, ever since Aaron, the Levitical priesthood. Verse 5 reminds us that it is the sons of Levi who receive tithes from the people, according to the law and order set up by God. So trace the logic. Abraham... Work with me. We're digging. We're digging. Grab, grab it. Abraham is greater than his great-grandson Levi, and yet Abraham gives tithes to someone who is greater than he. This means that Melchizedek is greater than Levi, having a superior priesthood. So, okay, so if Abraham is greater than Levi, but Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, Melchizedek is greater than Levi in his priesthood. In this comparison, verses 9 to 10 tell us one could even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So if we were to then zoom out, we're going to zoom out now, And see the main point so far of what the author is making. What's the main point? The main point so far is that the priestly order of Melchizedek is supreme. The best. And is reserved only for those who live forever. Moving on now to verses 11 to 23. I have no no outline. Isn't it great? There's no outline. But there is a point, if you catch it. Moving on to verses 11 to 23, we see how this uh, priesthood of Melchizedek exposes the weakness of the Levitical priesthood. 
what was the purpose of the Levitical priesthood? To go on behalf of the people and make atonement for sins, according to God's instructions. So if you think about the Levitical high priest, on the day of atonement, he would take the blood of bull and goat into the most holy place, and he would sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant. But it wasn't a permanent solution. It wasn't, this wasn't actually forgiving sin fully. Hebrews 10, 11 says that these priests stand daily offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. This priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, served as a temporary means so that the Holy Covenant Lord could dwell with Israel without destroying them in judgment by these regular animal sacrifices, the people recognized how costly it is to sin against God Almighty. It costs something. Something has to die because of how grievous it is to sin against God Most High. And God's wrath could be appeased temporarily. There would be a passing over so as to not consume them. That's why Hebrews 7, verse 11, tells us that there was a need for a new priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek. Perfection was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. Verse 18 says that it's set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. It was never, it was never intended to be primary. Just as it says in Hebrews 10, verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It's temporary, and it's foreshadowing. It's pointing us forward. In the Old Covenant, people before Jesus came they would have seen from afar this faint outline of the Messiah who would come, who would be the ultimate sacrifice. Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. Love the book of Hebrews. Read it. Love it. It goes into greater detail about the, the passing away of the old covenant for the new, better covenant enacted on better promises through the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. But here in chapter 7, our author is stressing two major areas of weakness of the Levitical priesthood. Two major areas of weakness. First, the priesthood had its role by legal requirement only, not by an oath. More on that later. So we'll put a bookmark right there. We'll come back to that. By legal requirement only, if you're a Levite, you became a priest because you're a Levite. Secondly, and maybe the most relevant contrast to Melchizedek is this. They died. A high priest could only serve so long and then someone would have to take his place until he died and so on. And you see that in verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So in order for God to permanently deal with sin and to permanently dwell with his people, 
a new priest would need to arise. And as a result, a new law would be established. The weakness of the Levitical priesthood anticipates a greater high priest who would represent his people before the living God with zero deficiencies. So we are now seeing this faint outline taking form, having flesh and bone and, and eyes and a heart that beats mercy. Jesus Christ, priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verses 15 and 16, read it with me. Look down. This priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concern, concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Remember, Melchizedek had no beginning of days and no end of life. Anyone who would follow after that priestly order must be the same. And this is so critical, how, how crucial the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to the gospel, that Jesus had to be raised. As we've been even going through the gospel of Mark with Pastor Clint, so many times these passion predictions where he would say the Son of Man must be handed over, must die, and must three days later be raised from the dead. He must be raised. After being nailed to the cross as our substitute, he died on the cross. Like any other priest, he died. But unlike any other priest, Jesus did not remain dead. His is an indestructible life, a life that is risen and glorified. He is ascended, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And because Jesus is raised from the dead and his glorious ascension to the heavenly throne room right now, Jesus has become high priest forever. But not by bodily descent. It's so, that's actually pretty important. Jesus wasn't born of the house of Levi. So he couldn't just become a priest. He was born of the house of Judah. And our, our writer here says that Moses said nothing about priests from the tribe of Judah. But it is because of his indestructible life, his resurrection and ascension, Christ being raised from the dead, Paul says to the Romans, will never die again. Death has no dominion over him. The old order made nothing perfect, but verse 19, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we do draw near to God. Unlike any other priest, Jesus was also made priest with an oath. Look at verse uh, 20 to 21. gives reference to Psalm 110, where the Lord speaks to David's Lord. We know this to be Jesus Christ. Quoting from Psalm 110, it reads, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Not only has Christ qualified himself to enter into the priesthood of Melchizedek by his, by his indestructible life, but he is also appointed high priest. Verse 28, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus 
is our great high priest forever, the impeccable, sinless Savior and representative of his people. He has no need to make sacrifices for his own sins, like all the other priests before him, but his sacrifice was for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And indeed, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So if, if this whole time we've been digging, 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 into the depths of Hebrews 7, it is here that we, we put down our shovel and there's a thud. Verse 25 is the treasure chest. It is the, it is the goal that we've been looking for in Hebrews 7. All this hard work is about to pay off. Verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Consequently, or therefore, or as a result of Christ's indestructible, resurrected life seated at the right hand of God right now, he is able to save you. So I must, I must ask the question, consider yourself, like really, are you saved? Are you saved? Are you saved? Because the Bible tells us that there is a day coming when God himself intends to judge the earth with a terrifying fury, where one day there will be two groups of people, only two, those saved into heaven and those who are judged into eternal hell. The Bible says that this is a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Are you saved? Has the Lord saved you? Have you turned to the Lord Jesus? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So Jesus, the Lord Jesus, alive now in heaven, stands and he says, Come, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is even offering himself to you. Now come to me and I will not cast you out. Are you saved? Has the Lord done this? Melchizedek in Genesis 14, he brings wine and bread in his priestly role to Abraham. But the Lord Jesus says, I am the bread of heaven. Eat of me. Drink of my blood and he will live forever. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Consider that you are going down a river and the waterfall is coming. The waterfall and you will perish at the end of this waterfall, you are going to your doom. So you must grab hold of something. You must grab hold of anything that will save you. People look to their careers. They look to money. They look to their health. They look to their children. They look to anything that will just make them feel safe. 
all those things that you grab onto are mere logs floating down the river with you. As these logs go down, you grab hold of them because you think they will save you. They won't. They're going down with you. But as you are going down, there's a rope, and his name is the Lord Jesus. Grab hold of him. Grab hold of the Lord Jesus. He will not disappoint you. He will not let you go. He is able to save you. This rope is tethered to the land, and this land is called glory. This, call, this land is called heaven. And he alone, if you grab hold of him, the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Everything else will be destroyed with you unless you turn to him today. Jesus says, come. On behalf of the Lord Jesus, come to him. Would you come today? Jesus stands ready and willing to save you. He is able and willing. And Jesus doesn't just help you. He saves you. He saves you completely. So for those who are, by simple faith, grabbing onto the Lord Jesus, you are now hidden in the rock of ages. You are safe. And God, who is just, who would otherwise judge you for your sin, your rebellion, your hard-heartedness, now God himself looks through the Lord Jesus and sees you through him that you are righteous. You are at peace with God. We are reconciled to God and God is reconciled to us. As one author has put it, we are to the uttermost sinners. And yet Jesus is a to the uttermost Savior. As I bring it to the close of the sermon, I just want to give you one image. If you, were, if you were to come away with one image from Hebrews 7, what would it be? Think what you want about lawyers, but Jesus is your defense lawyer. That's the image that you can have of him in heaven. He is your advocate. The Levitical high priests, they wore a breastplate of 12 fine stones, each stone having the name of the tribes of Israel engraved. And when he goes into the holy place, it is as if he is representing all of God's people to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. In the same way, Jesus Christ is our high priest and he represents his people in the heavenly courtroom. How does he do that? Because he's a human. He is constantly bringing humanity to God's mind. Constantly. Not only is he human, but he has scars in his hands. He bled and died for his people. His nail-scarred hands bear witness to his finished work on the cross on our behalf. It is as if, believer, that your name is written on his heart and engraved in his hands. For Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Practically, what does that mean, practically? It means that when you sin, believer, in great and small ways, you are forgiven fully. Past, current, future sins 
It's all paid for. Christ is not ashamed of his bride, and even when we sin, he claims us as his own. The scars on his hands and feet and side are constantly visible to the Father. It's as if when you sin, Jesus tells his Father, but look at my scars, look at my wounds. That sin is bought and paid for. Forgive him, forgive her. And Zechariah 3 gives us a glimpse of how Satan wants to accuse his people for the wrongs that you've done. Is there that guilty conscience that you're carrying this morning for the things in your past, the things that you're doing right now even? Satan standing at the right hand of Joshua, the high priest, ready to accuse him. And yet, how did the Lord himself advocate for Joshua? The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Maybe you're weighed down with the guilt of the sins you've committed, and when Satan tempts you to despair, you're operating on this constant low-level grade guilt, you only have to lift your eyes before the throne of God above and see him there. Jesus, who is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You've got, you've got the best defense, the defense lawyer you could ever imagine. So many of us, we are these closet legalists, and we seek to clean ourselves up and make ourselves appear greater than we are. When in reality, when we confess our sins and we turn to Christ, we make him our representative before God. He represents us fully and in the greatest way, and we only need to bow down and worship him, our great high priest. And as it says, just, again, the preacher, to bring it to a close, really, as it says in Hebrews 6, 19 and 20, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your great mercy that you would send us a Savior, the bread of heaven, this King, Priest, Prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would lay down his life as the Lamb of God, taking away the sins of the world. He would also be our priest and represent us before you perfectly forever. Lord, this is a great hope to us as we turn to him, perhaps for the first time. We turn to him and we just relax into his arms. We need you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you, Lord Jesus, are able to save to the uttermost. We are the uttermost sinners, and yet you are an uttermost Savior. We love you, triune God, and we pray with thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. We say it all the time, but if the Lord is moving in you something of looking towards Christ, a simple trust in a simple plea of salvation that you, would, you could come today. Today could be your day of salvation. 
Christ is able to save you. Talk to someone in your pew. Probably anyone could be helpful in that conversation. Look to him. And for all of us, now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.